Thank you for that testimony. And yeah, death really does seem to be the theme, um, but also resurrection is a theme that we've been talking about for the last three weeks. And I've really been thinking this week about the things that we can and cannot control. You know, one of the things that we cannot control is our birth, right? We're, we were brought into this life apart from our own free will. God determined that we would be born at a specific date and time with specific parents for his specific purpose. But also a thing that we cannot control is the day of our death. In fact, there's been many people who have tried to commit suicide who have failed because God did not let it happen. And so it's foolish for us to worry about the things that we cannot control. But it's wise to rejoice in the promises of God. Ultimately, we cannot control the day of our death, but we do rejoice in the promises of God the salvation, and the resurrection of all who believe. This last Wednesday, and I, I tried to reach out to as many of you as I possibly could to tell you firsthand, but I'm telling you now as a church, uh, this last Wednesday, our sister in Christ, Sue Yusey, passed away, and she is now with the Lord. Her uh, family contacted me on Friday to let me know that, that they had found her dead and on her couch. And we had just seen her this last Sunday. She was here in fellowship with us. She was singing praise and worship, which she said many times that she loves to sing praise and worship here with us. And she heard the words of God's truth about what's going to happen to those who, who die. Well, Sue, you see now is experiencing for herself what happens to those who believe in Jesus who die. And as Mike said, quite frankly, I'm, I'm rather jealous. <laughs> it, it, it is a time of mourning. We do shed tears. We miss them because we, they will not return to us, but one day we will go to them. And so for that fact, we do weep and we do mourn and we do miss them. But we do rejoice in the fact that our sister no longer has to deal with any of the problems or the cares of this world, any of the heartache, any of the tears, any of the politics. She is now fully in the kingdom of God with Christ as her King and Lord. She is in paradise with him now today. I truly believe that. I had a great conversation with her a couple weeks ago. She stopped into my office and wanted to talk about some important life things. And we ended up talking about how Christ is her heavenly husband and her eyes are fixed on him. And so I know without a doubt that Sue right now is experiencing the paradise promise to all of us who believe. And so we rejoice in that. But also that brings us to the uncertainty of our own life and our, the uncertainty of our own death in terms of when that day or that hour will come. Some of you might feel like you know, death is knocking at your door. And perhaps, who knows, maybe God will extend your life 20 plus years. We don't know. Some of you might feel like you're invincible, like you have your whole life of, ahead of you. 
And perhaps, who knows, maybe it'll be cut short. The fact is, our life is a vapor, and nobody knows the day or the hour of our death but God alone. And so what does that mean for us? Well, again, it's foolish to spend our life worrying about this stuff. We don't want to uh, be foolish with our lives and, um, you know, put ourselves at risk constantly for death, but also we don't want to live in a plastic bubble. We were put on this earth to live life, to enjoy God's creation, to enjoy the fellowship of fellow believers, to love one another, to serve one another, to reflect God's glory as image bearers and also as ambassadors of his kingdom. And so there is a good purpose for us to get out and even to go into the dark and dangerous places to shine his light. So we don't worry about death, but rather we rejoice in the promises of God. And one of the greatest promises of God for us is his salvation and the fact that when we do die, that's not the end. We don't go into total darkness, total unconsciousness, that we don't just simply cease to exist, that we don't, those who believe, don't go to a place of torment, but rather that Christ himself is preparing a place for us in heaven. And did you know Christ was a carpenter? He's also the creator. He's also the Savior. He's God himself. How amazing is that place that Christ is preparing for us right now? It's better than anything you've ever seen with your human eyes. And so in that promise, we rejoice. And that's what I want to cover here today. Briefly, we're, it's going to be a brief sermon here this morning, uh, and I want you to hold me to that. We're going to cover the end of chapter 15 together, and let's say a word of prayer, and we'll let the word of God speak for itself. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to be in the fellowship of saints. What a joy it is to have fellowship with you. Lord, our lives would be lost and meaningless without the promises of, of your word, the promise of salvation, the hope of eternal life, and just the joy that we are right now as we sit and stand. We are your children. You have purchased us. We belong to you. And there's nothing this world can do to change that. So we thank you for that promise, that security, that hope, the love that's in our hearts. And I pray, God, that the promises of your resurrection would embolden us, empower us, and inspire us to go share what you have done for us with others. So help us now in this hour, Lord, to be inspired. Fill us up with your Holy Spirit and cause us to do great things. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul concludes his, uh, his thought on the resurrection here in chapter 15, verse 50. He continues, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the, the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable, perishable body 
must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on, the, on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul talks about this in terms of a heavenly transformation. The fact is, if you are born again, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you have already undergone a spiritual and a mental transformation. That, that's what it means to be born again, that you have been made into a new creature, spiritually, mentally. But clearly, we still have flesh and blood. Clearly, there is still some of our old nature. So in our own testimonies, many of our testimonies include that we had a powerful born-again experience with Christ. We were living for him. We were on fire for him. And then the world attracts us again, and we fall into sin, some of our old vices. But then God comes along, and he reminds us of his grace and his love and his salvation, reminds us of the decision that we made to follow him, reminds us that we're his children, and then we come on back. And for many of us, our lives ebb and flow that way with a constant uparch of growing in righteousness. We're being sanctified in him. But yet we all recognize the fact that we are still flesh and blood. We are still human beings living here on earth. We are not in heaven yet. We are not in paradise yet. And so Paul is talking about this very point, that in order for us to transition fully into heaven or into our heavenly bodies, we first must die. And Paul talked about this a little bit last week, that a seed must die in order for its contents to, to grow and to be fruitful. According to 2 Timothy 2.16, there were some who were teaching around the area and around Jerusalem and all over that the resurrection had already taken place. 2 Timothy 2.16-18, through 18, uh, Paul writes to his young pupil, Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have served from the truth, swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So whether they were saying that the resurrection had already taken place and you've missed the boat, or whether they were saying that, yeah, if you're born again, then the resurrection has happened. In fact, I've heard some theologians try and explain it that way, that once you're born again, then you're already resurrected. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, yes, you are born again, and positionally, you are saved, you are regenerated, you are being sanctified, but that you will not be glorified until the actual literal resurrection takes place. And so Paul was dealing with this misinformation within the church in the first century, and he wanted to make it very, very clear to them that no, you are, none of you are resurrected right now. Nobody has been resurrected already, at, at least in terms of uh, eternal life, uh, the, the final resurrection. And so he begins by saying, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom 
of God. And again, this points back to his earlier teaching. He also says the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. And what this means to us is that there's no way that you in your flesh and blood or me in my flesh and blood can possibly earn a way to ascend to a, a heavenly body or a heavenly being. So you will always be flesh and blood until the day of your death. There is no ascension that can take place until you die. Um, some people might believe that there's different degrees or different levels of Christian righteousness that you can have, and, and perhaps you can reach this point where you're ascended and glowing, and you're above everybody else, and you're in your heavenly body. That is absolutely false. That is heresy. That is not true. My friends, the fact is, every single one of us, unless you are uh, one of the two exceptions in Scripture, which we have never heard from any, anything like that since, but unless you're one of those exceptions, each one of us must die. It is a fact of life, and it's often something we like to not talk about. But as Mike was saying, as Christians, friends, that, that is the finish line of this life. That is the beginning of your eternal life. It should be something as Christians that we embrace, that we don't attempt to commit suicide, but rather that in our hearts and minds we are ready that we do say, yes, Lord, if today is the day, I am ready to go. Lord, as I'm on the hospital bed, Lord, if this is it, I'm ready to go. That should be ultimately the conclusion that we come to. Because we know that we cannot have our heavenly bodies or um, enter into heaven until that happens. Paul makes the point that we must first be changed. So it's a significant change needs to happen. Now he talks about how this is going to happen, how some people have fallen asleep, and sleep in this context is the reference to believers who have died. For example, uh, Sue Yusi right now, according to scripture, is asleep. This does not mean that she is um, sleeping and not conscious that She'll just one day wake up and be resurrected. And the reason I say that is because the Bible gives us certain examples of why that's not true. Uh, this is simply a figure of speech. If someone has um, died, they're not dead, they're not gone, they're not lost. They're simply asleep, metaphorically speaking. When you consider the, uh, the thief on the cross, the one who expressed his faith in Christ... Jesus turned to that thief and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. And one of the reasons why we know that this paradise is not just a dream state, not just sleeping, is Christ told the, either the parable or the literal story of Lazarus and the rich man. And if you remember in this story, Lazarus and the rich man, they were separated by a, a large chasm. And in one side or the other, people were conscious. And they were reaching out and crying out for the angels or for people to, to tell their family members back on earth ab about this place that I'm in so that they would believe in Christ and not be in this place. The rich man was not living a good life. He did not put his trust or faith in God. 
And so he ended up on the bad side of the chasm. But then we also have the example of Mount Transfiguration, as we talked about, I believe, last week, where Jesus and his inner cabinet of three, they were on top of the mountain, and Christ transformed into a, a heavenly body, it, it seemed, and along with him were Moses and Elijah, that they were recognizable, that they were communicative, that they were conscious. They weren't in a state of sleep. Wouldn't that be weird, Mount Transfiguration? All of a sudden, they see Christ transform, and here's Moses and Elijah just sleeping. Yep, there they are, they're sleeping. They're in their sleep state. No, but rather, those who are asleep, those who have died, who believe in Christ, are conscious, they're communicative, they're in a place of paradise. The Bible refers to this place, this place of holding before the resurrection, as Abraham's bosom or even the footstool of God. And those who have died, especially the martyrs' death, will be nearer to God. And they'll be able to cry out and communicate and, and ask God for justice for their martyrdom. This is what those who are under the footstool of God do. They're, they're crying out for justice. That doesn't sound like they're unconscious or that they're sleeping in, in a literal sense. But rather that they're in a place of paradise. They're waiting. They're longing for God to do what he's promising to do on, on the earth. And so when we think about our dear friend Sue, where is Sue? Well, she's in a place of paradise. She's conscious. She's aware. She's longing for God to, to bring some of you <laughs> for the resurrection to take place. She's longing for God to bring his final justice. And so that's what we can expect as well. That when we die, it's not the end. It's not just going to go dark and one day you'll wake up but rather you will be in a place of paradise nearer to God than you are right now. And so, whether you're asleep or whether you're living, I assume you're here this morning, you have a pulse. So far, none of you are sleeping, though some might be getting close, which is why I don't want to go too long. I want to honor your time here this morning. But you seem to be mostly living here this morning. And if we're mostly living, what, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to those who are asleep? What's going to happen to those who are living? Well, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. And a mystery was a way to say that I'm telling you something new that was previously unknown. And Paul talked about this a lot, how God gave him supernatural insight into things that God had prevented believers in the Old Testament from knowing. But now God was revealing through Christ, through the Holy Spirit, and to the church. One of those things was about the nature or the, the moment of the resurrection of the dead. Now, he says resurrection will be sudden. He says it's going to happen in a moment, which that Greek word is atomos. And it, ultimately, atomos means that which cannot be cut or divided. So in other words, you know, that's where we get the word atom from, something very small, something nearly impossible to dissect and to segment out. So in other words, the resurrection is going to happen suddenly, in the twinkling of an eye. And it's going to be even faster than a blink because the twinkling of an eye is not a blink. It's just a flash of light that comes from your eye. And so it'll be 
less than a millisecond, I would imagine. And so it'll be sudden. It'll happen as we're, as we're spending time together, as we're living our life, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Math, uh, Jesus talks about this, Matthew 24, 27 and 42, 44. He says, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's pretty quick. If you've ever sat and watched a lightning storm, just how quickly it goes across and it's done. So the resurrection is not going to be some process where you first have time to go pack your bags or you, where you have time to stop the sinning that you're in the middle of doing. Okay, if you're a believer and you've uh, went back on your old vices and you're in a moment of sin, I mean, you're not going to have time to stop if the resurrection happens. And, you know, I'd, I'd imagine that um, maybe when you stand before God, he's going to bring up, so what were you doing when I resurrected you? You know, so make sure that you're not caught in your sin uh, in the moment of the resurrection, which should hopefully compel us at all times, even when we're alone, to consider the fact that the resurrection could happen right now. But even more than that, the fact that God is, is observing his creation. He's observing his children at all times. We should be aware of that. And for this reason, he says, stay awake. Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had not known in which part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the hour is unexpected, and it will be sudden. So therefore, we must stay awake. We must not get lazy with our pursuit of righteousness. You know, I think about, as believers, uh, the, the person who says they're a Christian but does not come to church, it's like the athlete who does not go to practice or does not train. I mean, what good is it to say you're a Christian if you're not actively engaged in the pursuit of mastering the spiritual gifts, prayer, Bible study, church fellowship. I mean, if you're really serious about growing in your, in your faith and staying awake, then you will be engaged in the spiritual disciplines at all time. Um, me and a few friends from here, we, uh, I would say maybe foolishly, signed up for a half marathon in October. And uh, I, I have a feeling that Charlie's probably going to be hating me uh, during practicing and, or training and probably in the middle of the marathon, I'll even be asking, what the heck was I thinking? But I, this morning, I went on a five-mile run as part of the training regimen. And the coach who was in my ear, I used the Nike running app, which is a really nice way of doing it because you have these coaches who are talking you through the run as you go. They're actually right there with you. And uh, one of the things that the coach did was at about the third mile, he popped into my ear and said, okay, let's make sure that, you know, this is usually the point where runners start to um, lose discipline in their form and in their breathing. So I want you to re-engage on your form and your breathing to concentrate, putting your, your chin uh, in front of your chest, leaning slightly forward, relaxed arms, concentrating on your breathing. Right? And I recognized as he was saying this, 
that, yeah, I had gone into a sloppy form. I was kind of going side to side. I was breathing <laughs> with, with my mouth, and I wasn't focusing on keeping the discipline of a good run. And it's the same way as Christians, because sometimes as we start to get spiritual fatigue, we start to lose, lose our Christian discipline. And so I'm here, hopefully, as the coach in your ear, reminding you to re-engage in your disciplines. Have you, have you started a Bible study back in January? I'm going to read through the Bible in a whole year. How many of you are still doing that? Or how many of you have lost discipline and have stopped and have thought, well, dang it, I've, I've stopped this long. I, I'll just, next year I'll pick it up again. Don't wait that long. Pick it up again now, today. Start doing it again. How many of you set out to pray every single day or every single morning? To set your alarm, to get up, maybe to do a Bible study with your spouse? But then after a week or two, you fell away from that. Or maybe you did really good for a while, but then there was a tragedy in the family, and then that caused you to just stop that discipline. I'm here as, as your spiritual coach to encourage you to pick that up again. Work on those disciplines. Call, call your friends. Fellowship with your friends. Make it a point to, to uh, make it a priority to be at church together, to be in fellowship. This is like the athlete going to the gym. This is your spiritual gym. And without it, you are not going to be ready to compete in the trials of life. We need each other. We need this place. We need to come together in the name of the Lord to sing songs of praise together, to hear the voices of the children singing loudly behind us. That encourages us to mourn with each other as a fellow sister in Christ has passed away, to talk with each other about those things, to share a meal, all those things. And so as your reminder, uh, it's good to do those things because the moment is coming and it will be sudden. The disciples also understood that the coming of Christ would be sudden. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 says, You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It will be unexpected. All these people who claim to know exactly when it's going to happen are full of it because Christ said that you're not going to know. The disciples understood this and they repeated that assertion. So we will not know. So we need to live every day as if Christ could come back today. But he does say that in the moment of the resurrection, there will be a signal. What will that signal be? He says that the last trumpet will mark the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. There's that language again. That you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this, will, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And the word caught up there is often used as rapture. 
that will be caught up in the air with the Lord. It'll be instantaneous. It'll be sudden. It'll be unexpected. But yet when it happens, it will be very loud, (laughs) apparently, because there's going to be a trumpet involved, a heavenly trumpet involved. And, you know, I was listening to some audio of the shofar. Anybody ever hear a shofar be blown? It's a very distinct and interesting sound. It's not quite like a trumpet. Uh, It's got a deeper kind of bass sound to it. But uh, imagine that with a perfect shofar just just sounding and echoing throughout the universe. Um, So we will hear the trumpet sound. And when will the trumpet sound? Again, nobody really knows exactly the day or the hour when that's going to happen. Um, But we do know that throughout Israel's history, trumpets were instruments that were used to mark important events, celebrations, uh, battles, for example, and the trumpet will also be used to signal the resurrection. Consider also Exodus 19, 16 through 17. It says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. In that context, the trumpet was a summons to come and to meet God. In the same way, when the trumpet, when the final trumpet blows, there will be, we will be caught up in the air with those who have fallen asleep. We'll be looking over, oh, hey, Sue, we missed you. And then all of a sudden, we will be brought to meet God in the air. What a day that'll be. Some people like to say this is the trumpet from the seven trumpets of Revelation. The seven trumpets of Revelation mark the wrath of God being poured out onto those who are objects of his wrath. This trumpet will be a trumpet for the church and for believers. And so therefore, they're not the same thing. Then he talks about the prophecy that was fulfilled. This is a uh, prophecy from Isaiah 25, 8 through 9 which says he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. As I read this, I think about the current... um, state of affairs of this world and of our country and as we just kind of can see off the horizon that things are progressively going to get worse and as they progressively get worse these kind of verses will ring truer in our hearts that we will long for the Lord to come and deliver us from such an evil generation and so what a day that will be when we finally cross over into that heavenly realm no longer faced with the possibility of evil or temptation or anything like that, any sorrow or tears, but we will be with him forever. And that's our hope. And then he closes this section by referring to the victory that we have in Jesus. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the victor. 
He is the one who died on the cross for our sins. And he is the only one. Never forget that we do have victory in Jesus Christ. Even right now, you do have victory in Christ. And if you are committed to him, and if you follow him, and you commit yourself to all the different spiritual disciplines, to running and fleeing away from sin and following him, then you will be victorious with him in righteous deeds. But as it stands in your salvation, you are victorious with him, that he has conquered death in your life, and that when you die, that will not be the end, but you will be raised as he was raised. And so the final point that Paul makes here in verse 58, and we'll close on this thought here, Here's his therefore. So this is the therefore to the entire chapter 15. So what does it mean to us that Christ has raised and that he promised that we will raise too? What should our action be? In fact, in, in Bible college, uh, the professors used to say, this is the so what portion. Okay, so you, you gave us a bunch of theological truth. So what? What does that mean? What does that mean for us today? What is the practical application? Well, Paul gives us the practical application of what the resurrection and the truth of the, of the resurrection should do for us. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is very similar to James 2.17, which says, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to respond to the truth. This is God's call for you to respond to the hope that is within you. And the way that God wants you to respond is by growing in your internal strength, in your defensive strength against the enemy and against sin, and also in your offensive strength. So your internal strength, this is the steadfastness Steadfastness means dedication and determination to finish what we start. If we are committed to Christ, and if this was easy, if it was easy to live for Christ, everybody would do it willfully, and they'd be happy to do it. But it's not easy to live for Christ. In fact, I would say it's the hardest thing to do here on earth. And without God's help, it would be impossible to do it. Because if you're going to be steadfast in Christ, that means that you have to deny earth, certain earthly pleasures and deny certain fleshly desires in order to truly follow him. Why? Because you're born again. You no longer live to your flesh. You have died to your flesh. But you now live to the spirit. You live to heavenly things. And so it requires internal strength. And that's where God helps us out. By his Holy Spirit, he helps us out, but you have to ask him, you have to let him help you out in your life. You can't constantly be pushing him away just so you can get that momentary pleasure, but rather, if you are struggling in a place, in a sin, if you are not being steadfast in your faith, if you're rejecting his call in your life, if you're saying, well, I've already served this many years, uh, I'm done, I'm gonna let other people do it now, that's not the way this works. God is calling you to serve as long as you have breath. Because as long as you have breath, 
God wants you to serve. He has a place for you. If you're living here today, he has a place and a purpose for you. And uh, take that how you will. But we need to uh, let the resurrection increase our internal strength and our steadfastness to finish what Christ has started in our lives. Also, immovability. And this is our defensive strength. And this means that you're not easily shaken or you're not easily moved from your place of faith. And this is uh, partially external because you're going to have enemies in your life who are going to try and dissuade you from believing. And it, it might come through the form of a person. There might be a person of influence in your life who's going to uh, be teaching you all sorts of falsehood, who might inspire you into a life of sin. You need to be defensive and immovable. And oftentimes this means removing yourself from that place of influence or that friendship of influence, if it's a negative one. But if you should happen to find yourself in a situation where you could be compromised, you need to have the faith enough to be immovable. But this also comes in the form of difficult situations. Maybe you, uh, you, you've had a series of unfortunate events in your life. Maybe you, you've lost your job, you've lost your home, lost a loved one, come down with some kind of illness that's very difficult. Maybe you're in a really lost place in your life. This is exactly where Satan wants to try and attack you because you're at a place of weakness. But even in your place of weakness, we must rely on Christ to defend us, to help us, to make us immovable. And this is why Paul says that he rejoices in his weakness. Because when we are weak, we become strong through him. God wants you to rely on him, cry out to him. He is our strong tower. He is our defense. You cannot defend yourself against Satan and his demons alone. You need Christ. Call on him for help. And finally, this is the offensive strength. So we don't just have internal strength or defensive strength. Some people like to think that as Christians, our primary goal is just to try not to sin. Do your best not to sin. And then, you know, make it to heaven. That's the goal. Some people live that way. But we're also supposed to be offensive in our faith. And, we're, and it takes great strength to do this. Because oftentimes God calls us to go into dark places and to speak to evil people and to share the good news of the gospel even at the cost of death or the risk of death. And so this requires great strength to do this. But we are all called to do this. We are all called to share Christ to the world. And if any of you are danger seekers or adventure seekers, then realize the fact that God has called all of us to be evangelists. And maybe if God has called you to be a thrill seeker type of person, that you don't mind being in a dangerous situation, then my friend, you should go to the front lines of unbelief. You should go to the places where there is no worship of God and where death is everywhere. And those are the kinds of places where you should plant yourself, shine the light of Christ, and preach fearlessly. But it takes a certain kind of strength and it takes a certain kind of person. For most people, it'll be getting over that fear of sharing Christ with your coworker or sharing Christ with your next-door neighbor or even more difficult, 
with a family member. We're all in those kind of situations. We're all called to share Christ. And so if you struggle in any of these areas, think back on the resurrection. Because the resurrection is what's supposed to motivate us to this therefore. To be steadfast, to be immovable, to be abounding in the work of the Lord. So therefore, hope is what propels us forward to do the work of God. And what also propels us is the fact that none of this work is meaningless. None of it is done in vain. There are many things you're going to do in your life that have no meaning. Self-pleasuring things, things that feed your flesh, none of that has any meaning in the kingdom of God. But when you live for him and you live righteously and you do righteous deeds, those things echo through eternity. Those things have value eternally. And so why waste your time feeding things and doing things that, are, that will perish? We should be committed to things that last forever, the work of the Lord that lasts forever. And so I want to encourage you this morning, church, as we fellowship, as we break uh, from this service, to encourage each other with the words of the resurrection. This is what Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, encourage each other with these words. If you're downcast, if you're burdened, if you have a friend who is downcast or burdened or you're mourning the death of someone, talk about the resurrection. Talk to each other about what, what it might be like when we are caught up in the air. Talk about what it might be like, our heavenly bodies. Talk about what the new heavens and the new earth might be like. I love to talk about this with my children. I love to, with my youngest daughter, I like to talk with her about how it might be like Minecraft, where we get to float around and, and create all sorts of stuff with, with all different elements and things like that. And, and she likes to feed into that and talk about that. It's good to get our kids to think about heaven, what it might be like. Because in our darkest, darkest moments, that's what's going to propel us, make us steadfast, immovable, hoping in salvation. And so thank you for your time, church. I want to close in prayer, and we'll be on our way. Father, thank you for this precious time we have together, Lord. We don't know if we'll have tomorrow together. So help us to enjoy these moments. Help us to enjoy our fellowship with one another. Encourage us to have conversations with those that we don't normally have conversations with, not knowing when or, or whose time will come. Help us to inspire us to reach out and, and call loved ones who we haven't spoke with for a long time. Rekindle relationships. Thank you, God, for the promise of the resurrection and what that means to us. I pray that we will all grow in, in strength in ministry, and doing your work. Lord, uh, I, I pray that you be with Sue Yusey's family, that um, they would be comforted by you, and th those who don't believe in you would come to know you, even through her death. Comfort those here who are hurting. Remind them of your promises. Encourage. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.